0: I find that I really enjoy making a personal connection with my patients and having them come back and say that really just wasn't anywhere near as bad as I was expecting.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Health Careers with Dr. Marn, a podcast show that attempts to pull back the curtain on what a career in health and wellness is really like. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Marn. In today's episode, we're gonna focus on a unique specialty within dentistry. One thing great about receiving a dental degree is that technically you could start working independently right after school, which is different than getting a medical degree where the overwhelming majority of new graduates from medical school eventually go on to do a residency, which is kind of like an apprenticeship, if you will. Now, if you're one of those dentists that want to specialize in dentistry, there are a handful of specialties that you can specialize in. Do you know how many specialties within dentistry there are that you can get board certification in? Well, there are 10 specialties in dentistry where you can become board certified. And did you know there are certain specialties that can actually do surgery? There's really only a handful of dental specialties that actually do surgery. Two specialties that come to mind are periodontist and a pediatric dentist. But the one that probably most affiliated with surgery within dentistry is that of an oral maxillofacial surgeon. Or an oral surgeon, as some people call them. And in today's episode, we're gonna meet one of those oral surgeons. In fact, we're gonna meet an uncommon type of oral surgeon, and that is a female oral surgeon, because there are not that many of them. In fact, if you listen to this podcast episode, you're gonna learn how few women there are relative to men in this profession. And that's just one of the things that makes this guest stand out. Not only is this oral surgeon a, a woman, but she's also a physician with an MD degree. And she also has a very successful practice in downtown Manhattan, which is not easy to do. And my guest today also happens to be a wonderful person, a dear friend of mine, and with someone I've been working with for the last about three years or so now. My guest today on this episode is Dr. Cheryl Fay. She is a board certified oral surgeon in New York City. Dr. Fay initially got an associate degree in dental hygiene from UMDMJ, and then eventually got her dental degree at the UMDMJ of New Jersey. She completed a residency in oral and maxillofacial surgery at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, then received her MD degree at Jefferson Medical College, and then followed that with a one-year general surgery internship. In this guest interview with Dr. Faye, I really think you're going to learn how this specialty, oral surgery, really stands out from other dental specialties. So, let's jump into this interview. Hey, Cheryl, thanks for joining me on this episode uh, or or this podcast. Appreciate you joining me.
0: I'm really happy that you invited me. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to work with you on this as well. As people don't know that actually we work together every so often because I help do sedations for some kids and adults sometimes for your practice.
0: Exactly right. That's how we first met.
1: Yeah. Um, Through a mutual friend. Yes. Paul Chu. That's right. Right. But since we're talking about that, what exactly do you do, Cheryl? What is your job? What responsibilities do you have?
0: So I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, which is kind of a mystery to a lot of people. I am a specialist within dentistry, but truly we probably have almost the least to do with dentistry of all the dental subspecialties or dental professions. We're sort of in a little groove that's in between dentistry and medicine. And the things that we provide really are surgical aspects of dentistry. So most often in a private practice setting, those procedures would include impacted wisdom teeth, placement of dental implants, um, surgical biopsies for lesions that might be inside of the mouth or about the mouth. In the hospital setting, it's a little broader where it can be all of the maxillofacial complex, meaning the entire face and bones of the face. Some people call us the orthopedists of the face. So in a hospital setting, you would find us doing things like repairing um, facial fractures, Uh, Sometimes things such as jaw resections and reconstructions for larger areas within the upper and lower jaws um, and things like that, which might be done uh, in the operating room. And orthognathic surgery, which really, we really own that space, I feel like, as maxillofacial surgeons, which is when the upper or lower jaw needs to be actually re positioned or reset because of how it relates to the face or the or the lower jaw. Uh,
1: what kind of clinical problems do you have to deal with? Um, you you told me a little bit about some of the procedures, but what are the problems people actually have that come to you? For example, why would you have to reset someone's face?
0: Well, um, there can be a mismatch between the upper jaw and the lower jaw. So the way that The teeth or jaws should fit together as far as the upper jaw meeting the lower jaw. You can have a a relatively overgrown lower jaw or a relatively undergrown lower jaw. And same thing for the top jaw. And so it, it kind of develops into this mismatch where it can cause functional issues as far as chewing, sometimes even with speech, And sometimes even uh, cosmetic or it's a visible, it can sometimes be a visible deformity where the lower jaw might be really overgrown and that person may or may not like how their appearance is. So once the jaw is reset into place, we always try to put it into a functional place, but oftentimes it improves a patient's physical appearance as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Just to digress a little bit, you at the start you said you're a oral maxillofacial surgeon, but other people also refer your profession as oral surgeons, and OMFS. Is that correct? Yes. Got it.
0: So oral surgery is kind of the easy way of describing it because you don't have to say that big word maxillofacial. Yeah, yeah. Which is more of our, you know, official.
1: It's a mouthful, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for 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 everybody, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: All right. Now, one thing I, a previous guest I had who was a orthodontist, he said that his specialty is is really trying to make the bite correct as an orthodontist. Yes. Do you work with other professions within dentistry pretty closely, or is a really a lot of your work you do as a standalone?
0: We really almost all of our cases are in collaboration with another dental professional orthodontics especially, that's really where the orthognathic, meaning the jaw surgeries, really need to be done hand in hand with the orthodontic specialist as well. So um, there's very oftentimes uh, the orthodontist does uh, his or her work first in order to set everything up surgically so that at the time of surgical procedure, things are put together in the most predictable way. So I find it essential to work with the orthodontist for that. Um, And then, of course, with other dental professionals, even the general dentist many times will refer their patients to me for whatever specific procedure they may need, whether that might be the wisdom teeth or perhaps even just a single tooth that's failing and needs to be removed and then replaced um, or something that the general dentist found in his or her exam that they want me to evaluate and treat for them.
1: Your, um, Would you say that, therefore, as an oral surgeon, as an OMFS, that your profession does the most surgery compared to other dental specialties?
0: Absolutely. The, there's another specialty within dentistry called periodontics, and they describe themselves as being a surgical specialty as well. However, really, as far as the entire maxillofacial complex, as I was explaining before, which is just the entire face and skull, the the, the facial portion of the skull is really our territory. Um, So it's a little beyond just the the mouth and teeth itself.
1: Got it. What does your typical day look like from start to finish?
0: So right now I'm primarily private practice. Okay. So I'm in my private office and the days will typically have a a patient schedule, certainly. So it it varies a little bit day to day, Um, but people come and see me usually for a specific reason. So most often a patient will come in and have a consultation for whatever we may need to be talking about. And then we will schedule them for their surgical procedure. And then I'll usually have a a follow-up or a post-operative appointment with them. So if you were to come into my office any of the days of the week, you would see some combination of consultations, surgical procedures, and follow-up appointments. Now, I try to be organized in how those things are uh, scheduled through the week. Because there seems to be certain times that are more popular for doing procedures, surgical procedures, and other times that are easier to have the initial consultations or the follow-ups, which are more non-surgical procedures. So when you looked at the schedule for my day or the week, you would see blocks of time, which would be specific to consultation procedures, and then blocks of time, which were dedicated to surgical procedures.
1: Uh, and so what time does your day usually start and when does it usually end when you're in the office setting?
0: So in my office, we're really basically nine to five. I will say that this is sometimes unusual. Uh, I think this is more of a Manhattan thing than it is in other places of the country. Other surgeons start their surgical days, especially their surgical procedures, at seven or seven thirty in their private practice. But Manhattan patients don't really want to come in at seven or seven thirty. Mm. They'd like to mm. come in around nine, and so that's when we start. <laughs> um, you know, as you know, when we have procedures that involve sedation, which I do yeah. very routinely in my practice, we like to schedule those patients earlier in the day. Um, but even with that, you know, I find that the the Manhattan patients really like to come at around nine and even ten. And 11 o'clock, that just seems to be what works for them. So that's how our schedule is day-to-day is is really 9 to 5.
1: Got it. Now, you are also doing procedures and surgery in the hospital setting. Yes. How often do you do that? And is that usually something you do in the morning, evenings, weekends?
0: Well, so for elective cases, meaning cases that we're planning on doing, uh, we have to make that reservation with the hospital and with the operating room. I say it's often like making a hotel reservation, that you have to make sure that that room is going to be open and available for you when you want to do that. And that's usually coordinated. I prefer to have my cases early in the morning first start, as we know, because then I, the, mm-hmm. the uh, likelihood of being delayed is much reduced. You know, for me doing c- cases in the hospital, it uh, ebbs and flows. So, you know, I- I'll probably have two, maybe three cases per month, but there will be sometimes a month will go by and I haven't had any hospital cases. Got it. Now, this is a little bit different than when I take call for the hospital. Which is oftentimes required in order to maintain your hospital privileges. And that means that you have a block of time where you are responsible to work with the residents for any emergencies that may come in for that, for example, a week at a time. Those cases sometimes are done at nights and weekends because they either need to be done in a more urgent fashion or that's the time that you're able to get because it's not so much scheduled ahead of time.
1: Got it. What are the misconceptions people have about your profession?
0: Uh, it's interesting. Sometimes I feel like people don't really know what we do at all. And until they come in and kind of meet with us and see what actually happens in an oral surgeon's office, you know, because two, there are general dentists who can do surgical procedures like straightforward more straightforward type of extractions tooth extractions some general dentists will if it's their interest to do so will educate themselves on how to take out wisdom teeth but i think people think about us mostly for wisdom teeth but then they're surprised at the other things that we do especially the hospital component i think almost nobody is really that familiar with the hospital component of our specialty. And I'd say that both from the dental side and from the medical side um, because I will meet other medical professionals who really don't have that much of an understanding of what you know some of our bigger surgeries that we do.
1: You're right because um, my first interaction with an oral surgeon professionally was in the hospital setting and doing uh, procedures there. Are there a number of of oral surgeons that do work in a hospital setting primarily is that a large part of your profession a lot of people work in a hospital setting or that's a minor number of people that do that
0: it's a major part really oh. our residency is all hospital based so just to give you an idea y- you know we go of course to college and then we go to dental school which is 4 years and in order to get into an oral surgery residency which is additional training after dental school it's at least a four year surgical residency and it's hospital based. So, there is also a component of training where you can get your MD degree as well. And I would say probably about 50% of residency programs have an MD component with that too. So, and that means going to medical school. Right. It does, we do usually get advanced standing in medical school. So, each program differs a little bit, but you usually do about two years or a little over two years in order to complete the medical school requirements. But the entire surgical experience, whether or not you have a medical school component, is all hospital based. So, with that being said, m- most of the major hospitals have an oral surgery training program incorporated, the same way that you would have. ENT physicians or emergency room physicians that are in training. So um, so many oral surgeons are full-time academic and will be part of those training programs. I find that for the majority of oral surgeons, you're mostly either full-time academics or full-time private practice. I think most people, when they're finishing their program, want to do some of both. Because there's benefits to both and there's fun parts to both. Yeah. But I think that once the demands start to come across a little bit more as far as your private practice, then that's a lot of times where it diverges into one or the other or primarily one with some of the other.
1: You mentioned some of the fun parts. What is a fun part or rewarding part of your job?
0: So I think that because we're so well trained surgically I think it's hard to give that up when you finish all of that surgical training, the bigger procedures that we do in the operating room, in the hospital. It's hard to totally give that up and just go into private practice where you're doing sometimes what we just call tooth procedures. Mm. So when we're able to still maintain components of those larger operations, I think that it's quite satisfying to do that. I think- Sometimes, as time goes on and your private practice is becoming busier, and you're really spending a lot more time in private practice, there's sometimes there's a natural progression where you sort of switch over into private practice and you're doing less hospital cases. Um, but that's what the that's the fun part again of of being on call and still being involved in the trauma cases and being involved with the training programs and keeping in touch with the residents because that keeps you, I think, in that portion of it, the hospital portion, even though you're primarily in private practice. The fun part of private practice is really having control over how you run things day to day. And you can gravitate towards the cases that you prefer to do. So I think that it's a nicer personal relationship a lot of times with your patients in private practice. You have the opportunity to really make a connection with those patients. And a lot of times you really can make a big difference in their in their lives honestly. As far as if somebody's having problems with their wisdom teeth and most often they're painful or unpleasant some way and you can assist them with that. It's it's you know, it makes a difference for them. And I find that I really enjoy making a personal connection with my patients and having them come back and say that really just wasn't anywhere near as bad as I was expecting. So I feel like we have the opportunity to really assist patients through their procedures. And it's, that's a private practice thing, I think.
1: Uh, Cheryl, is there a particular case or a patient that stands out in your mind that maybe you took care of either recently or a while ago that kind of speaks to how you kind of impacted somebody in your in your career or your profession?
0: Well, I, I do actually think that some of the biggest impact that we make is with the orthognathic surgery when we move those the jaws around. And it can be sometimes in ways that you expect and sometimes in ways that you don't expect. And what I mean by that is when you give somebody the jaw positions where it really improves their function, that's what you would expect. Then that's how we approach those cases in order to put somebody into their best functional position with their jaws, with their teeth, with their jaw joints, so that they are functioning the way that most of us do. But as I alluded to earlier, it definitely has a cosmetic component to it, and it's best described as form follows function. so when you put things in the right place, things also appear to be in the right place. So a facial appearance a lot of times can improve just by improving again those the the functional uh, standpoint of a person. I had a woman one time that she was really interested in having the surgery done. And it's a big surgery, I will say. It sometimes is six to eight hours in the operating room. It sometimes requires one to two nights hospital stay afterwards. Um, There's a lot that goes into it ahead of time, along with orthodontics and even after. So this is one of the really the bigger things that we do. And she really hadn't told many of her Co-workers, what she was up to. And after everything was said and done, she went back to work afterwards after, you know, she had about two to three weeks off. And when she went back to work, they couldn't figure out what looked different about her. Mm. They kept saying, did you get your hair cut?" And she's like, no, no. Did you, did you get a nose job? No. She's like, no, <laughs> I didn't get a nose job. They couldn't pinpoint what it was, but they knew that there was something that looked improved about her. And I thought that was such a great compliment because I always want that appearance to come out looking very natural. And for her, it was, and it was very subtle. But what really struck me was at one of our follow-up appointments, because there are many follow-up appointments with that type of procedure.
1: By the way, what surgery was it?
0: This was double jaw surgery. This was top and lower jaw surgery. So it was orthognathic surgery for both the t- upper and lower jaw. Got it. Okay. And when she came in, she said, I just wanted to tell you, Dr. Faye, how happy I am with my outcome. And she said, And after all this time, I finally look like my twin brother, which I hadn't even realized. Was anything in her list of perceived problems? But she had, you know, she had started off with a pretty prominent lower jaw. And once her facial balance was restored, she could see the facial fi- features that looked similar to her twin brother. And wow. I, that was very, it, like, that was very significant to me to hear that feedback coming back from her. So. It was, that was one of the more memorable things that I've had in my career. Again, with a big surgery. On a smaller scale, it really is helping patients get through their procedure within the private practice. And like I said, it's a very, um, I feel happy when people come back and tell me that just really wasn't at all as difficult as I thought it would be, or I was over this much quicker than I anticipated, or, you know, my friends told me this was going to be the worst thing and it really wasn't. Um, And I think some of that is by, of course, it's case by case. Some cases can be super smooth and some cases, you know, will require some extra time and effort. But I also think that setting expectations is also what helps quite a bit.
1: How would you describe the work-life balance for your profession?
0: That's a really good question. (laughs) Because um, just doing what you do as far as your profession is really just one part of it. Um, Running a private practice is also a part of what needs to be considered when talking about work-life balance. So. I think when I was in my first few years of my private practice, it was all private practice. It required a lot of time and energy and effort. And at some point, I had a little discussion with myself about how can we make a better work-life balance, especially living here in Manhattan, where there were so many things to take advantage of and to get involved with. So I did at one point really rethink my schedule day to day and how to limit my day each day so that I would have the opportunity to partake in activities that would be non-work related. Not just going out and meeting with, you know, other dental colleagues, but going to the ballet or going to the gym. Or joining an exercise class or things like that, that are readily available to us, especially here in Manhattan. So I think that initially, I was very focused on getting my practice up and running. But you at one some point, it's important to make sure that you do have that work life balance, and it's totally possible. Uh, You just have to make it so.
1: Got it. Um, Do you recommend this career for other students?
0: So, yes, I actually think it's a great career if it's something that you're interested in. I mean that by, you know, this isn't for everybody, certainly. And I think, you know, even in uh, medicine, when you're in medical school and you're with all of your, all the medical students in the class and how people filter into different aspects of medicine, whether it's surgical, non-surgical, patient-oriented, non-patient oriented, -oriented, super intense, less intense, all of those things. I think that there's uh, something for everybody when you look in the world of of medicine and even dentistry. Um, I think it's a great profession. I think it's something that puts you at the higher tier within dentistry, Um,
1: What do you mean by higher tier? I
0: think that we have the most education out of anybody in dentistry, especially postgraduate. Um, And we sometimes are the kind of go to person within dentistry. So... With there's things filtered to us, I think by default at some point because we have to kind of figure it out. And it's not that you don't learn medicine in dentistry, but we really learn medicine uh, beyond dental school. So I think that we really are kind of, as I said, at the at the upper tier of dentistry itself. So. I think that that's very enjoyable and it's very rewarding. And so I think that there's really a lot to offer if it's something within a person's interest.
1: Okay. What do you think your future outlook is like for your profession?
0: I think it's great, actually. I think as long as we have wisdom teeth, we're going to be in good (laughs) shape. Now, wisdom teeth are starting to, um, I think that there's definitely evolutionary changes that are happening to wisdom teeth. And we see this every day. Uh, wisdom teeth can be in all different varieties. They, a lot of wisdom teeth don't come in straight.
1: Yeah, They
0: can be completely sideways yeah. or they can be at a 45 degree angle. Right. That's how I meet most of my patients, honestly. And sometimes patients ask me, well, do wisdom teeth ever come in straight? And I say, I guess they could. I just don't meet them as often. Yeah. So wisdom teeth, I think, in terms of evolution are actually on their way out. But I think it's going to be some time before they're completely gone. The other interesting thing about wisdom teeth is that most human patients have four wisdom teeth. But again, they don't follow the rules all the way these days. So some people have less than three or less than four wisdom teeth and some people can have more than four wisdom teeth. So I think all of those variations are part of the evolutionary process of wisdom teeth just kind of not being as useful as they used to be. But I think as a profession. Um, There's a lot to look forward to. Again, wisdom teeth are going to kind of be there for a long time. We'll have those to uh, rely on. And then the way that we replace missing teeth now has really evolved. So it used to be that when a tooth uh, was taken out and uh, needed to be replaced, the dentist would sometimes make a bridge, uh, you know, which is kind of a series of caps to fill that space. But now we're routinely placing dental implants. And placing the implant is is definitely falls under the surgical uh, portion of what we do. Uh, Making the crown on top is a lot of times with the general dentist, but there's collaboration with that too. So even that sort of technology is continuing to improve and evolve as we get more research and uh, information together.
1: You know, you talked about it before briefly about how you had to go through a certain number of years of schooling to get your oral surgery degree, but before you even get into those details about your journey through that, when you were younger, were you planning on being an oral surgeon when you were younger?
0: Not even. Really, for me, if anyone told me when I was graduating high school that I would be an oral surgeon or that I would even have gone to dental school, let alone dental and medical school, I would have said, I think you may have the wrong person.
1: <laughs> why?
0: I had, I, I really didn't know that that was going to be the case. So uh, I was taking college courses, kind of generic, the usual things.
1: But why did you not think that? Why did you not?
0: Think I had no you- idea that I was even, in the running for something like that. I didn't have any frame of reference for it is really what it was. I had no,
1: so you had no dentists or medical people in your family, not one. And where would you rank yourself as a brightness student?
0: So I think I did pretty well. I think I didn't know how smart I was. Does, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> I don't think that I really knew that I had the ability. To get a doctorate, I really didn't. I wasn't aware, and um, I mean, I I did well in school. I had good grades. What
1: was your aspiration then, as a high school student?
0: It was really unclear, and I started taking classes. You know, kind of generic things as far as you know, English Comp One and Comp Two and things like that. And in the meantime, yeah, I I was uh, I took a, a part time job in a dental office. Oh, you did. I did. And I started off as a dental assistant. I was, you know, assisting the dentist and I was trained on the job and I was chair side with the dentist, uh, who I'm still actually very good friends with, by the way. From there, I saw what the dental hygienists were doing in the office and I thought that the atmosphere was really nice and I thought this would be great. And I, talked to the dental hygienists, and I went to dental hygiene school from there.
1: So you're actually thinking dental hygiene now as a profession.
0: Yeah, I thought that was great. And I was I was like, wow, this is really, you know, this is a nice profession. And it still is. I still think it's a great profession. However, when I was in dental hygiene school in the dental school building, and I met the dental students, I really kind of quickly came to the realization that I can do this.
1: Like being a dentist. Yes. Okay.
0: After I finished my hygiene school, I really, from there, finished my prerequisites that I needed and applied to dental school and went to dental school from there.
1: Did you ever work as a hygienist then or not really?
0: I did, but it was brief, but I did because I worked also while I was taking my prerequisites to get in. And even while we first started, when I first started um, in dental school, I would work on weekends as a hygienist. Wow, um, and it was very helpful to do that. Yes,
1: you were must have been busting your butt because just being in dental school, graduate school is demanding.
0: Yes, yes, it was.
1: And now you're working on top of that on weekends.
0: Yes, it was not easy to keep it up, but I I felt like it kept me also connected a little bit so I tried to work as much as I, kept, I could on the side. Mm-hmm. So once I I thought going to dental school would be, you know, great and I thought this was, you know, I really did a good thing for myself. Um after dental school, I did a one year uh general practice residency which is doing hospital-based dentistry. This is where it really happened where as part of the hospital residency the oral surgeons that were there, you had to do, you had to rotate through with the oral surgeons as well. The oral surgery residents, I should say in the oral surgery department. Mm. So I went into the operating room and when I saw what they were doing there, I was so blown away. I was so interested in what they were doing as far as the facial fractures and the orthognathics that they were doing, that I really started asking myself, how can I get into this? Like, how can I do this? And so it really went from there. It was my interest to to find out more. And I did. And then I got myself into an oral surgery residency program. So it for me, it was really step-by-step. Now, I certainly met people when I got into my dental school class, I met people who from day one said, I'm going to be an oral surgeon. That definitely wasn't my experience, but I also feel like I was super fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to get myself into that position.
1: I think it's great that people realize that you don't have to decide your end profession or your profession that you're working in until after you graduate from maybe graduate school, like in your case you graduate from dental school and then you still weren't set on being an oral surgeon. It's only a year after that, you know, I think that's important.
0: That's, that's exactly right. I sometimes tell my, uh, you know, people that work with me in similar ways is, you know, you sometimes just need to kind of see what's there, what opportunities are presented to you. And, um, that you don't have to know right off the bat or from the day that you graduate high school. And that's why I really think back to the same thing that I said before, when I graduated high school, if you told me that you know where I'm going to be at, you know, after my college, I didn't even know I was going to go beyond college at that point. I just didn't have, like I said, the frame of reference or the the way of knowing what was available. So I feel, again, very fortunate to have had that pathway. Now, would I have done anything differently coming up that way? I probably could have gotten myself there a little quicker. I probably could have saved a couple of years because really it is a longer road. You have your college years, you have four years of dental school, and then you have a four or six year residency program um, you know, for oral surgery. And then I also did a year of general surgery as well, so that I would be qualified as having a medical license, which is state by state. But so when you add it all up, it can seem like a bigger number. And I probably could have gotten there more quickly had I known at the beginning, but I didn't. So that's just, so I don't know that I would have done anything differently, except for, like I said, I I could have maybe saved a, a couple of years.
1: So I want to talk about briefly about that because as a um, dentist, after you got your dental degree, at one point you decide to get an MD degree. Yes. During your oral surgery training. Yes. And that's that's one thing I learned about when I was talking with some oral surgeons. This is years ago, that some of them have an MD degree. I'm like, wait a second, you're a dentist. What do you mean you got an MD degree as well? And I and this is the only profession I know of in dentistry. After your dental degree, you can, and only for oral surgeons, you can get an MD degree in that oral surgery program. Right. So how did that work out? So you're in oral surgery, you're doing that oral surgery residency, and then you say, I want to get an MD degree as well. And you said, I remember you said 50% end up getting that, but you're not required to. So how does this, how does this work out from a training standpoint?
0: Well, for the most part, it's really program by program. So when you're deciding to apply for oral surgery, you should probably know at that point if you're interested in what's just the single degree program, which is four years, or the double degree program, which is going to be six or seven years. Um, it's usually program by program. So you can apply to the, this residency program knowing that there's an MD component already offered. It's a longer program. Or you can go to a straight four-year program where you're going to get all of your oral surgery training, all of the surgical training, but you're not going to have an MD. And you may not have the opportunity for that. Of course, for me, I didn't fit in either of those boxes because when I went to my program, it was a traditional four-year program, but it had an MD option after your four years were done. And you had to be recommended by the chairman of the program in order to be allowed for that MD option. I will say that now that program that I graduated from has a six-year program well in place, but when I was started, it didn't. So when I finished my four years, I actually thought, I think I'm good. I think I'll try to find a job now. And I went out on some job interviews and I even though my program director at the time was encouraging me, Cheryl, I think you should go to medical school. After I went on a few job interviews, I was a little unsure whether I wanted to be, again, straight in private practice because I had done so much surgical training. So I went on some job interviews and then I went back to my program director and I said, I do think that I would be interested in in going to medical school. Now, this isn't the normal way of getting into medical school at all. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he put that connection together. And then I was able to, uh, from there, I went to two years of, of medical school, having already finished my surgical residency.
1: You finish your dental school. You're almost at the end or at the end of your oral surgery training. Why get the MD degree? What's the purpose? What's the point?
0: So there was a, you're couple- a doctor already. Yes, right. <laughs> you're right. Like who would do that? It sounds crazy.
1: Crazy. Crazy. <sighs>
0: so there was two parts to it. And the one was that I was a little disappointed in the job opportunities that I was getting. They were very private practice based. They didn't want you going to the operating room. They just wanted somebody in the office working, producing and that sort of thing, and w- when I was asking these potential employers, you know, is there? Are you guys doing any hospital cases? No, we're doing straight, you know, like very bread and butter oral surgery. And I was again, I I felt like I wasn't ready to do only that. I wanted to still be able to use my surgical skills. The other thing, quite honestly, is that there's not a lot of women in oral surgery. It's getting better, and it continues to get better.
1: That was my future question. How many, by the way, how many women are in oral oral surgery? For every one woman, how many are there that's a male oral surgeon?
0: So out of 100 oral surgeons, you'll have 10 to 12 women.
1: Okay, got it. So you're thinking now?
0: So, you know, in any surgical specialty, um, they sometimes tend to be male-dominated.
1: Yes, yep.
0: I really thought if I want to really have everything and feel like I've put myself at the top of my training, it would be to my benefit to have my MD degree as well. And that's also why I did a year of general surgery too. I see. Because I wanted to be able to have everything that I needed to say, I've got everything and I'm not going to fall short of anybody's estimations or expectations. So I do think that that was definitely a part of my decision making at that point is being able to have everything as far as credentialing that I wouldn't have to answer any questions going forward about any portion of training that I may or may not have.
1: What does the MD degree allow you to do as an oral surgeon that you wouldn't otherwise get to do if you just had the DDS?
0: So that's a good question. Um, For the most part, it doesn't change you that much because your surgical skills come from your surgical residency, whether you're an MD or not. I will say the MD training I feel has made me a better surgeon I have a much better understanding of my patients at a higher surgical level. And it's not to say that you can't get that by just your surgical residency, but it's different. It just is. Now, there are some states, and this goes state by state, because with licensing in dentistry and medicine, it's state by state. Mm-hmm. There are some states where there are certain procedures that you're not allowed to do unless you have an MD degree. Also, oh really? Yes, and those are things like hip grafts. Like we take uh, bone from the from the hip if we need to take bone from some place to, you know, bring into the jaws somewhere. So some states will only allow you to do that if you have an MD degree, but. Mostly, there's not that much that differentiates you in terms of procedure that you're allowed to do anything more or less with the MD or without.
1: I want to shift gears a little bit to a more more lighthearted portion that I I like to call Marn's lightning round. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, Short answers. Uh but of course if there's a story I want to hear it but <laughs> all right you ready I'm ready All right would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals
0: I'd rather speak every language in the world
1: Favorite sport to watch I know this one Baseball Favorite junk food
0: I might I I have a hard time saying this out loud but I guess I will Doritos
1: Oh my god how, oh my god the secret's out <laughs> I know. What is your absolute number one biggest pet peeve?
0: Horns honking in New York City.
1: Well, good thing you live in New York City. Yeah. Would you rather cuddle with a baby panda or baby penguin?
0: Do I have to choose? <laughs> <laughs> I think a baby panda. Except for when they're so small, they're just a stick of butter. So maybe a penguin is better.
1: Wow. <laughs> that lucky panda. Okay. If you were really hungry, would you eat a bug? Yes. What if I told you it was a certain type of bug?
0: Then I might have a different answer.
1: <laughs> Did you ever believe in Santa Claus?
0: We mean ever.
1: Did you ever believe in Santa Claus?
0: I absolutely believe in Santa Claus.
1: Say something cool.
0: <laughs> That's going to stump me.
1: All right. That, that wasn't that cool right there. Uh, <laughs> finally, if you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you?
0: I would want ice cream
1: and a tent. Ice, cr- ice cream and a tent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, okay. I, I had to think about that one for a bit, but that's your answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheryl, uh, if uh, listener, listeners want to reach out to you and learn more about you, where would they go?
0: probably easiest to contact me through the practice, which is either the website is okay,
1: or
0: our email, which is tribecaoralsurgery at gmail.com.
1: All right. Great. Well, Cheryl, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I think, I think if people listen to this, they're going to learn a lot about oral surgery and what it does and how it impacts other people's lives. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, everybody, that's our show today. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about today's guests or other past guests, just check out my website, healthcareerswithdrmarn.com or hcwithdrmarn.com. Of course, if you like what you heard on this podcast, then please go to my website, add your name and email to my email list. That way you can get the latest announcements and news as they arise. You can also find me on Instagram at drrichardmarn. That's Dr. Richard drrichardmarn. Thank you so much for listening and catch you on the next episode.